Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today is Semantic Threat Researcher Bridget O'Gorman. In this week's podcast, we'll be discussing two new pieces of semantic research about the BlackBite ransomware group and a new backdoor that is being used by a group that we call Cranefly. We'll also be discussing the financial impact of ransomware attacks and hearing about an open SSL vulnerability that briefly triggered a wave of panic last week. Yeah, but Jake, first, um, we published a new blog there last week about some new tools that were being used by attackers who were also using the BlackBite ransomware. Um, but I suppose before we discuss those new tools, do you want to maybe give us um, some of the background on what exactly BlackBite is? Okay, yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, BlackBite is a ransomware as a service operation that is run by a cybercrime group that Semantic calls Hecameet. Um, it has been around for over a year now, but it really came to public attention in February of this year when the FBI issued an alert um, where they said that BlackBite had been used to target multiple organizations in the US, including organizations in at least three critical infrastructure sectors. Um, Then in the intervening period since then, it's quickly moved to prominence and it's really emerging as one of the main players on the ransomware scene at the moment. Um, So we've had a lot of shifts in ransomware in recent times with the departure of some big operators such as Conti and prior to that, Sodino Kibi. And BlackBite seems to be one of those operations that has benefited from those departures and won itself uh, lots of affiliates. Uh, BlackBite is fairly professional uh, in the way it runs its operations. Um, They clearly know what they're doing. Um, So it is possible that it isn't their first venture. Uh, But having said that, we've yet to see any clear ties with any previously known actor, which is why we're treating them as a distinct um, cybercrime group for now. Okay, that's a good background, um, I think, Dick. So maybe we'll move on to the, the new blog now. And I suppose the main finding in that is our discovery of a new tool that the group is using. Yeah. Um, so what we found was that at least one affiliate of BlackBite has begun using a custom data exfiltration tool in some of their attacks. Um, uh, this malware, which we call infostealer.exbyte, um, is designed to expedite the theft of data from the victim's network and then upload it to an external server. And this all sounds kind of familiar. It's not the first time we've seen ransomware attackers develop a tool like this, is it? No, no, it's it's kind of becoming a bit of a trend at this stage. Uh, so, for example, in November of 2021, um, we at Semantic found uh, a tool called Xmatter that was uh, an exfiltration tool that was being used in conjunction with the Black Matter ransomware operation. Um, and Xmatter has sti- since been uh, seen being used alongside Noberis, which is a, a successor um, to Black Matter. Um, but there's other examples as well. There's a, a tool known as Ryuk Stealer, um, which is, had been used with the Ryuk ransomware, and then Steelbit, which has been used with some uh, Lockbit attacks. And I know you don't need a custom tool like this to perform exfiltration necessarily. So why do you think so many ransomware attackers are kind of going to the trouble of developing them? 
I think the main motivation is speed. Uh, so as you say, there's lots of way to, ways to exfiltrate data, uh, but it's often a multi-step process um, and attackers are always looking for ways to reduce their dwell time. And that's the time between the initial intrusion and the completion of encryption on the network. Uh, of course, the longer that takes, the greater the risk of discovery is. Um, so automating one aspect of the attack will potentially speed things up. Um, so that's probably the main motivation. Um, it's possible, too, that it was created to help maybe less skilled affiliates. Um, so in the past, we've seen uh, playbooks developed by ransomware operators to help affiliates carry out attacks. It's like a step-by-step -step guide of what you should do. Um, so maybe by automating exfiltration, it could be a bit more user-friendly, perhaps, but that's a bit speculative. And is Exploit much different from the other sort of exfiltration tools that we have seen previously? Yeah, I mean, in terms of functionality, it's pretty similar uh, to other custom uh, exfiltration tools that we've seen. But there's there's a few interesting details. So unlike um, similar tools, this one is written in Go, and it has somewhat more elaborate anti-detection features built in. So it checks if it's being run in a sandbox environment, or uh, it checks for debugging or antivirus software. Um, and that means it, you know, it's going to be that little bit more difficult for somebody who finds it to analyze it. Um, and it's also a bit more customizable. Um, so each example that we've seen has been pre-configured um, for that specific victim uh, with files uploaded to a specified um, file path on, on the mega uh, upload service for that organization. Yeah, I mean, that's all a fair bit of work, really, but we're still not sure yet, are we, if Exploit is written by the operators of BlackBite or by an affiliate, are we? No, we're not. Um, it was so far, all we can say is, is that it's being used by at least one affiliate. Um, we, we might get a clearer picture further down the line if we see it being used in more attacks. So if, for example, you saw two uh, attacks with very different TTPs, yet XBite was used in both of them, that could suggest that multiple affiliates are using it. And, and that could point that, uh, that it was uh, developed by the Hecame group themselves. But if we still see it being used with just a consistent set of TTPs, it would maybe suggest that it's the affiliate who's using it. And then aside, I suppose, from the use of XBite, do we have any more information to share about how black bite attacks sort of generally unfold? Yeah, um, in recent attacks, there's been a fairly consistent set of TTPs employed. So um, for initial access, uh, they exploited the proxy shell or proxy logon vulnerabilities in Microsoft Exchange Server. Um, they were also involved, observed using a number of different tools uh, prior to the deployment of the payload. So they include AdFind, um, which is a publicly available tool uh, that's used to query the Active Directory. We see it being used a lot in ransomware attacks. Um, they used AnyDesk, uh, which is a legit uh, remote desktop application. Um, and it, uh, and, and similar RDP tools uh, are often used by ransomware attackers because they can you know, get remote access to other machines on the networks. Um, they also use NetScan, uh, which is another publicly available tool. Um, it's used for um, network reconnaissance and discovery. And um, finally, PowerView, uh, which is a PowerShell based um, network reconnaissance framework, which probably also helps them map out the network. Yeah, so kind of lots of the typical using living off the land kind of publicly available tools that we often see with, yeah. um, with ransomware yeah. attackers these days. 
Yeah, it is all right. It's 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 uh, the kind of tool set um, that you 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 would see a, a lot of ransomware groups use. Um, okay, well let's move on to you, Bridget, because um, we published another new blog last week, um, and this is something that you were working on. Yeah, we've we've been busy lately. Um, yeah, this was quite an interesting blog, actually. I thought. Um, so one of our analysts discovered a previously undocumented dropper that was being used to install a new backdoor as well as other tools. Um, on victims' networks. And also very interesting, interestingly, the attackers were using um, a novel technique of reading commands from seemingly innocuous um, internet information services, IIS logs. And this activity was being carried out by a group that we're tracking as Cranefly, which appears to have um, some crossover with the group previously documented by Mandy and that they called UNC3524. Um, in our case, we dubbed the dropper that we saw in this activity Trojan.Gepi, and we dubbed the previously undocumented malware Trojan.Danquan. And while it's always interesting to see threat actors kind of developing new tools like this and custom tools, I would think probably the most interesting thing about the blog um, was the attacker's use of this technique of reading commands from IIS logs, as this isn't something that um, semantic researchers anyway have seen being used to date in real-world attacks. Yeah, it it is pretty interesting. All right, so maybe let's look a little bit more um, at that technique. How does it work? Yeah, so that's I think it's pretty it's a pretty clever way really for the attacker to send commands um, to its dropper. So IIS logs they're meant to record data from IIS, so that means basically web pages, apps, etc. Um, but the attackers are able to send commands to a compromised web server by disguising them as web access requests. And the IIS logs them as normal, but in fact, Trojan.Gepi can read them as commands. And the commands that are read by Gepi contain these malicious encoded .ashx files. And these files then are saved to an arbitrary folder that's determined by the command parameter, and then they run as, back, as the back doors. Um, and it's the presence of the strings words, W-R-D-E, XCO, EXCO, and CLLO um, in the IIS log files um, that kind of trigger this activity. So those strings don't normally appear in IIS log files, and they appear to be used for malicious HTTP parsing, uh, request parsing by Gepi. So basically, the presence of these strings prompts the dropper to carry out activity on a machine, essentially. Um, and the attackers can use a dummy URL or even a non-existent URL to send these commands because IIS logs 404 is in the same log file by default. So it would still work to send the command basically even if it was a 404. So it is a very clever and quite a kind of stealthy way um, for attackers to send these commands to victim machines. Yeah, really novel, all right. Um, so tell us a bit more about the um, the backdoors that, that uh, they, they actually drop using this. Yeah, so the attackers drop two backdoors. Um, one is hacktool.redeorge, which is a known malware um, that's publicly available. And it's a web shell that can create a SOX proxy. Now, we saw two ver versions, two variants of redeorge in the activity that we observed. And that was also seen in the activity Mandian talked about as well. Trojan.Danquan then was a previously unseen malware it hadn't been seen before this um, activity that we documented. And it, it is a dynamic co-compiler that compiles and executes 
executes and receives C code. And it appears to be based on .NET dynamic compilation technology. And this type of dynamically compiled code is not created on disk, but rather it exists in memory. So again, it's, it's quite stealthy. Um, and Don Quan acts basically as a backdoor um, onto infected systems. And it just seemed that remaining stealthy and avoiding detection on victim machines is a really important part of um, this threat actor's activity. Um, when the commands are being sent via the IIS logs, if the malicious HTTP request contains the CLLO function, um, a function called clear is called, and this function drops a hacking tool called Soxby.exe to disable event log logging for service control manager. And this hack tool as well appears to be a previously undocumented tool as well. So there's actually a third undocumented tool there. And it also appears that interestingly, this clear function attempts to remove lines that contain command or the malicious.as hx file paths from the IIS log file, basically to erase the evidence of the commands being sent, I suppose, essentially. However, um, it does not infect all the lines. So it looks like this function doesn't work as it was potentially intended to work. Um, however, the drop malicious.ashx files, i.e. Um, trojan.damfan and the redraw attack tool, they are removed with the word function if it's called with an R option. So the attackers do take multiple steps to remove evidence of their activity from victim machines. Now, the clear function doesn't seem to work as intended, but if it did, combined with the back doors being removed, you know, it would essentially remove all evidence of the uh, attacker's activity from victim machines. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff there. So it seems that this group is, is um, pretty skilled. Yeah, I mean, the creation of custom malware and the use of new techniques like this, as well as numerous steps they take to, you know, remain stealthy or kind of clear any evidence of their activity from victim machines, all point to this being quite a skilled actor. However, they do seem to have made some errors with the operation of the clear function. I suppose it does also show that, you know, threat actors like this are not infallible either by any means, and they can still make um, make some mistakes like this as well. Mm -hmm. And um, do we have any idea about motivation? What what is What is driving this group? So we didn't see um, kind of what the attackers were up to as regards if they were exfiltrating data or things like that, you know, I suppose that would make it very obvious what their motivation was. However, the level of skill that we saw the attackers demonstrate, um, their kind of efforts to stay under the radar, etc. that's generally the kind of activity we do see from advanced persistent threat groups who are generally interested in intelligence gathering. So I would say that that seems to be the most likely motivation, even though I wouldn't say we could say it definitively. Um, and when it comes to attribution then as well, we don't really have clues that will point to, you know, where in the world the group may group of actors and threat actors may be located and there doesn't seem to be links to any other very well-known groups for the potential crossover with the um, UNC3524 group. However, the level of skill and the level of kind of stealth shown by this actor um, demonstrates, I think, that's definitely one to watch and one to keep an eye on um, down the line, I would say. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Um, let's move on to our next item, uh, which is ransomware once again, uh, course, because yeah. the extent of <laughs> ransomware losses in 2021 um, was also revealed by the U.S. Treasury Department this week. Yeah, and I suppose really it's more an indication of the extent of these losses, probably more so. Um, but U.S. financial institutions reported nearly $1.2 billion in costs associated with ransomware attacks in 2021 which is an almost 200% increase over the losses that were reported in 2020. 
Um, and these figures came from data that was reported by banks to the US Treasury Department. And this analysis, it draws on reports that US banks are required to file with regulators to prevent money laundering. And it includes data from US banks as well as international banks that have US customers. And it covers things like extortion amounts and attempted ransom payments made by banks or their customers. So while it is a large amount of money, $1.2 billion, it is also probably also only kind of a snapshot of the true amount globally that is potentially being paid out um, in ransoms by organizations, um, which is a bit worrying. Um, and this report was actually released um, just there on the 1st of November. And that was the same day that a two-day counter-ransomware summit that was being hosted by the White House came to an end as well. And that summit brought together various government cybersecurity leaders from 37 countries, as well as private companies um, like Microsoft, to discuss how to tackle the threat of ransomware, essentially. Um, and after the summit, participants committed to setting up what was called a voluntary international counter-ransomware task force that would serve as a base for coordinated disruption and threat sharing about ransomware that would initially be led by Australia's um, government. And members also committed to holding biannual exercises to strengthen resilience and deterrence against malicious actors. They said they'd issue joint advisories that would detail the tactics, techniques and procedures they see being used, as well as creating what they called an investigator's toolkit that would feature lessons learned and strategies for responding to significant ransomware events. Um, and they also said they would commit to work together to prioritize disruption targets to leverage the breadth of authorities and tools available to pursue hard and complex targets more effectively. So lots of commitments being made there. Um, so we'd have to see what sort of impact that might have um, yeah. on the ransomware landscape as we as we go forward. Yeah, um, I mean, not surprising. Um, the the uh, given the amount of losses that we're seeing, that uh, there's such determination now to to tackle it. Absolutely. Hopefully, it'll have some impact. And um, finally, Dick, then you want to talk about the new vulnerability that we've got a couple of chat about lately um, in Open SSL. Yeah, um, and for a couple of days, I, I was wondering if our entire podcast this week was going to be devoted to this. Um, that's because last week, uh, word began circulating that a critical new vulnerability had been discovered in OpenSSL and that a patch was going to be uh, coming this week. Um, so news of an imminent patch of a critical vulnerability is usually isn't of itself that big news. However, with OpenSSL, it is. Um, that's because it's um, one of the most commonly used implementations of the SSL and TLS cryptographic protocols. Um, and that means it's used in huge amounts of software and services. So a vulnerability can potentially impact almost everyone. Um, so this news triggered um, reminiscences um, of the Heartbleed vulnerability in 2014. Uh, and that was another critical bug in OpenSSL that created a panicked wave of patching. Um, and an awful lot of people were fearful of a similar situation unfolding this week with everyone trying to patch um, what systems uh, they, they have using OpenSSL and even figure out what systems they have that use OpenSSL before the attackers began to exploit the vulnerability. Yeah, I can only imagine the kind of panic that was being triggered, but it turns out that the vulnerability doesn't seem to have been as bad as was initially feared. Yeah, um, much to everyone's relief, I would, I would I suspect, um, because uh, by the time the patch arrived on Tuesday of this week, um, the vulnerability had actually been downgraded from critical to high severity. Um, and I think the reason for that is, is that while 
the vulnerability in question um, does permit uh, remote code execution if successfully uh, exploited in theory. Um, in practice, it turns out um, that a successful exploitation may be incredibly difficult uh, to, to carry out, if not impossible. Um, so hence uh, the downgrade and hence the kind of abatement of a sense of panic uh, amongst people. Okay, so kind of kind of good news and the podcast. Song, yes, so. yes, a rare bit of good news. <laughs> um, okay, that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, but don't forget to subscribe to our podcast if you want to miss, again, not miss all of our future episodes. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel. And if you'd like to read our latest research, including our blogs on Cranefly and Blackbite, you can check out our blog, which can be found at semantic-enterprise-blogs.security.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence we're going to be back again in two weeks time but until then thank you and goodbye